Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. We're seeing a light at the end of the coronavirus tunnel, but whether it's daylight or the oncoming freight train carrying the Delta variant remains to be seen. But for Dallas Fed President and CEO Robert Kaplan, his eyes are focused on the numbers. As the FOMC moves to wind down $100 billion in monthly asset purchases, it's not making what's typically the next move, raising interest rates to tame inflation. The core rate in the U.S. is above the 2% target at 3.6%, and the figure is even higher for the Fed's favorite metric, the PCE index. So why hold off? My first question for one of the most influential members of the 18-person committee was a loaded one. How do we normalize central bank policy without crashing the North American economy? Uh... I think we need to take this in pieces. Uh, <laughs> yes. The, 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 the first order business, from my point of view, is to uh, look at our asset purchases. Uh, we're buying 80 billion of treasuries and 40 billion of mortgage-backed securities every month. If you roll back even further to uh, the spring of 2020, uh, obviously, there were a whole range of emergency programs put in place, so-called 13-3 programs, that helped to backstop market functioning in a range of markets. Those, those and related programs, including the PPP program and others, have lapsed, uh, but we're still left with the purchases. And for me, the first order of business is, is to make decisions on adjusting those purchases and beginning to wind down those purchases. I think the, the decisions on the Fed funds rate are not today's decisions. Those are decisions for down the road as we head into 2022, based on how the economy unfolds. Well, let's talk about the projections for how the economy would unfold. How does the Fed even establish a projection for when we're coming out on the other side of COVID-19? We uh, do a number of things. Uh, and here at the Dallas Fed, we do a number of things, uh, it, starting with, we talk to infectious disease experts, epidemiologists, and others to try to get a sense of efficacy of the vaccines, how effective are the vaccines against getting COVID versus hospitalizations and death. Starting with that, we then look at what's going on with the economy and how we think it's likely to unfold. And based on all that, uh, we come up with an economic projection for this year and next year, and we, we do that regularly at the Dallas Fed and we revise it. Our, our most recent public forecast for 2021 is 6.5% GDP growth with an unemployment rate drifting down to approaching 4.5% and a headline PCE inflation reading of a little bit below 4% for this year. And for next year, we believe the, our best judgment for growth is in the neighborhood of two and a half to three percent, continued improvement in the unemployment rate, and we think inflation will remain elevated, but but and some of the inflation pressures will broaden, but likely uh, headline inflation will be in the neighborhood of two and a half percent with with risk to the upside. So that's our base case, and we're constantly monitoring. Uh, the economy, uh, the status of the, the, the virus, uh, tools to combat the virus, 
And with that, we keep uh, updating our forecasts. And so, for example, we've got a resurgence in the virus going on in the United States, as well as other parts of the world. And, you know, what I've said publicly is through all our work with contacts, high frequency data, real time surveys, our sense is you're going to see, we may likely see some near term weakness would not surprise us. I'd, I'd even uh, think it's uh, it's probable you'll see that. You may see some slowing in the matching of workers to open jobs in the month of August. But I've also said there's nothing in that near-term weakness that will fundamentally change my medium-term outlook. But we'll keep uh, monitoring the economy to t keep testing and retesting those assumptions. The assumptions that you have already made, does the rise of the Delta variant put these calls at risk? I think anytime you've got a dynamic virus like this uh, and the efficacy of vaccines is uh, that status of that is changing on a daily or weekly basis, I think it, it, what we way we approach that here is just keep going back and test and retesting our assumptions and understand uh, what's going on with the virus, talk to experts, um, and uh, realizing this is an unpredictable situation. There's no textbook for this. And I think it pays just to acknowledge that, that there, there's gonna there's some uncertainty. The other thing we're learning is, the, is the economy and uh, the population, businesses, consumers are, are increasingly adapting to the reality that COVID is going to be with us for an extended period of time. It's not going to be a neat and clean straight line. It's going to be fits and starts. And I think what we're seeing is businesses and consumers are uh, starting to accept that reality and adapt to it and go on about their lives. Uh, and so that's also part of our process here to understand that evolution. So with core inflation in the U.S. at about 3.6% in July, the PCE uh, at 4.2, is this uncertainty about where we go from here, the reason why we're getting indications from the Fed that it's going to be a case of taper the bond buying program and then hold off on raising interest rates after tapering the asset buying? Yeah, so... So for me, from a risk management point of view, uh, I, I believe that the, I'll start with the purchases and then I'll talk about the Fed funds rate. I believe that these purchases uh, are, were, were well suited to the environment in 2020, early 21, before we had vaccines. These purchases are designed to stimulate demand, much better suited to stimulating demand. But everything we're seeing is uh, while not perfect, we've got strong demand. Uh, our issues are matching supply with demand. And so uh, I think th th these purchases are not as effective or appropriate as they were, and they're creating some side effects. Uh, excess risk-taking, uh, you know, credit markets, you have unusually historically tight spreads, high-yield high yield credits actually at negative real rates. Um, and the housing market is historically elevated. And uh, that is beginning and will in the future translate into higher rents, which will be particularly challenging for low moderate income communities to uh, 
to absorb. So when you put all that together, uh, I think we should be begin on uh, asset purchases and we should be doing that soon. And I think we should be doing the, the tapering gradually over eight months. Um, and, uh, and I think we'd be much healthier and better off down the road if we do that. The, the issue on the Fed funds rate is uh, we're going to have to see how the economy uh, evolves. Uh, I'm mindful of the fact that monetary policy acts with a lag, meaning it doesn't. if you change monetary policy and its stance, it may not affect near-term conditions. It's more likely to take some time. So what you're always trying to do is look a year down the road or further down the road, and that's the judgments and assessments we're going to be making. And so as it relates to inflation, uh, my concern is inflation, elevated inflation may be more persistent than others may think, but I'm going to test and retest that uh, as we move into 2022, and, and uh, we're going to have to keep revisiting that as we assess down in during 2022 down the road what's the appropriate uh, uh, stance as it relates to the Fed funds rate. But that's a decision down the road. We've got a near-term decision that I think we've got to make soon or now, which is regarding purchases. You touched on the housing market, and here in Canada, that's certainly a, a topic uh, of dinnertime conversation as well as conversations happening at the Bank of Canada, I can imagine, with these historically low interest rates and the, the fact that we didn't see a taper tantrum in the U.S. when the Fed talked about pulling back on asset purchases but not raising interest rates. How do you take the housing market and the remarkable growth we've seen in it, even through the pandemic, into consideration when trying to establish the appropriate point to raise rates? Well, I won't even speculate right now. Because everybody else is doing that for you. I think it's healthier and I think it's wise to divorce decisions on asset purchases from rates. They have different timetables. The asset purchase decision is, is now, near term. The rates decision is uh, as we head into 2022, and I'd rather separate them. And so it's important. You mentioned uh, the market reaction, our communication. I think I think it, I think we're well served to separate those two processes and make that clear. Uh, as it relates to housing, though, I do think these asset purchases um, are, are not. Let's put it at a minimum: are not necessary. Uh, for the housing market. The housing market doesn't need uh, any further monetary policy support. Uh, let's put it that way. And so uh, I think I think it's clear to me we should wean off that. The Fed funds rate, uh, the dynamic on how that affects the housing market is a little less clear. You know, when you're buying 80 billion of treasuries and 40 billion of mortgage-backed securities every month, it's pretty clear how that's affecting uh, the uh, yield curve and mortgage rates and, and a little more direct on the housing market. The Fed funds rate, may, maybe that analysis for me is a little more complicated how it affects the housing market. So when we saw an absence of a, a taper tantrum, many interpreted that as signs that we're not going to see the cost of, of borrowing rise until at least 2023 or so. Does that seem like an accurate reaction? Well, there's a couple of things going on in the background. One is uh, we've got aging populations around the world, uh, including in the United States and certainly in North America. 
And so there's a strong bid for, uh, for the Treasury curve. You got a lot of retirement money that needs to be invested in fixed income, and there's a strong bid for the Treasury curve. Uh, and there's a strong bid. It's a global bid for the Treasury curve. So we're, we're learning that. Number two, um, if you look out over the horizon, and I mean out beyond 2023, we're we're between now and then we're trending. We're going to go. We're going to trend back down to, you know, uh, trend growth. Okay, we're going to move toward trend growth. And what I mean by that. We know globally, and in the United States, uh, workforce growth is decelerating. We have an aging society. Uh, GDP growth is made up of growth in the workforce plus growth in productivity. We know workforce growth is decelerating, uh, okay? And we've had 3 million retirements, by the way, since February of 2020. We're, we're seeing that deceleration right now. And then the question is, will productivity growth pick up to help offset that deceleration. And the jury's out, but the point is, as it relates to bond yields, the number one determinant of bond yields is uh, prospects for future growth. And I can tell you, prospects for future growth are sluggish over the horizon because of uh, decelerating workforce growth. So I think that's a factor you're also seeing reflected in the bond markets. It, it, it helps explain why rates are surprisingly low and they've been lower than we've been used to historically. And I think in the future, they may be lower than people might expect because of decelerating rates of workforce growth and therefore sluggish prospects uh, for GDP growth, unless we get a burst of productivity growth that helps offset that. What would trigger a burst in productivity growth? So this is why it's very, very important. Early childhood literacy, skills training, infrastructure investment that it helps improve productivity, Wi-Fi access, broadening Wi-Fi access. Those are all things, in, in my judgment, that could help improve the quality of the workforce, the adaptability of the workforce, and therefore the productivity of the workforce. We're in a world where technology, technology-enabled disruption, technology investment is accelerating and I think we've, we've been maybe a little too slow, in my opinion, to invest more in the quality of our human capital, particularly the 46 million workers in the United States that have a high school education or less, and the future generations of the, these fast-growing demographic groups that seem to be lagging in early childhood literacy, uh, math, science, and reading skills, uh, we need to beef that up. I think that's a that's a high return investment that that we should be making that should help lead to higher productivity. Well, then let's talk a little bit about monetary versus fiscal stimulus. You touched on the idea that if we had a big productivity boost, that could come in the form of things like infrastructure programs. And we've got the Biden administration's one point three trillion dollar infrastructure program. Is this the necessary boost? Is it sufficient or is more required on Capitol Hill? I won't get into, nor should I, the specifics of any specific legislation, because as a central banker, that's a little bit veering out of my lane, other than I'll say the following. Investment in, if they're well done, roads, bridges, Wi-Fi access, uh, other infrastructure that helps improve productivity, I view that as different than government spending that stimulates current consumption. Government spending that stimulates current consumption gives you a boost, 
and then you it fades and you go right back down to trend growth. Whereas infrastructure investing, if it's well done and well targeted, should be a 20, 30 year return investment that will pay off over a long period of time and should help produce higher productivity. So I'm I'm supportive uh, conceptually. I would also say a lot of the infrastructure investment that needs to be made, particularly education, early childhood literacy, and skills training can be done without government money, can be done public-private partnerships with local businesses. Uh, and I think there's a role for that also, in addition to what the government might do. You've hinted at, at the skills gap within the employment market. And with this new framework, that's followed a near 20-month review that recommends flexibility on the 2% interest rate target. It sounds like what we're hearing is that we'll pull back on the asset buying, but we're not going to start raising interest rates right away, as we've often seen in the past, because we've got a bit of the disconnect. What are the risks, though, of a central bank willing to overshoot on inflation targets coming out on the other side of any given crisis? Let me put the the new framework in context, which we adopted uh at the end of last summer, uh, which I and I support. What it says is we're going to be less preemptive in the past in terms of uh, raising rates to anticipate inflation. Okay, and we've been through 10 years plus or minus where despite a very tight labor force, we did not see inflationary pressures. And I think we conclude in hindsight, maybe we had more latitude to, be, to, to not be as preemptive. Having said that, even though we say we'll allow inflation to run moderately above 2% for some time, the, the framework still is clear that we are committed to anchoring inflation at 2%, averaging 2%, and that means we need to anchor inflation expectations at 2%. So, uh, on the one hand, you don't want to be uh, too preemptive. On the other hand, you don't want to be so reactive as to be late. And that's the balance that we're going to have to find. I think it starts with weaning off the purchases. I think that that's a first step. But I will tell you uh, that there will be a point at which we're going to have to see how these inflationary pressures unfold. We are going to have to approach the Fed funds rate and Fed funds policy with a view, and I certainly will, that we are committed to averaging inflation at 2%. And, and, I'm, and I will reiterate also, inclusive growth, inclusive prosperity means not just full employment, but it means price stability. Price stability affects low moderate income communities disproportionately. And I take the dual aspect of our dual mandate uh, very seriously. And I don't think there's anything in the framework for me that changes that. So it's still your call that it's 2023 before we see the cost of borrowing go up? No, uh, I've actually said publicly that in my uh, summary of economic projections submission in June, I submitted the first rate increase being in 22. Um, and I don't see anything going on in the economy that would cause me to alter that view going into September, uh, the September meeting. But that doesn't mean we're going to raise rates in 22. But I will tell you, my forecast is that if the economy unfolds as I expect, I would be advocating to take action in 22. But, but that's not a decision for today. That's a forecast. Uh, the asset purchases is a decision for today. 
Uh, and we'll have to see if that forecast changes on Fed funds rate. But that's where our, that's that's my current view right now. So as you look at the economic components to this decision, what about the social components? We're seeing a continued rise in anti-mask sentiment, uh, anti-vaccine sentiment, etc. Do these types of social issues play a role in any decision you make? Well, they're part of the the, the context, and so I, I've said consistently, you know, as we as we approach monetary policy, I'm going to be looking at how well we're doing in weathering this pandemic, and I'm going to look how the economy unfolds. And part of weathering this pandemic, uh, increasingly, it's clear we've got to use all the tools at our disposal, in my opinion, to fight this battle. In other words, this this pandemic is is not so likely to be something that we look back and say it, quote unquote, ended. It's going to be the COVID could be with us uh, for an extended period of time or years as in the lingo it's something that becomes endemic. Okay, that we're having to learn to manage, to live with. And part of learning to live with it is vaccinations, using masks, testing where appropriate to monitor the spread of the virus. There's a whole range of actions that we can take and tools we have to fight this battle. And and certainly my view is uh, I uh, want to see the economy recover. I want to see us get toward full employment and price stability. And using those, that tools is, those tools are central. And so, yeah, I know there's some political sensitivity about some of these actions and others, but, but I think this is one of those cases where what each of us do individually affects the whole. This is not a case where I'll make my own personal decision and it doesn't affect anybody else. What we're learning in this is what each of us do affects all of us. And I, I think we need to fight this battle with that in mind. How do we factor endemics into economics? What we're seeing is every successive wave of the virus, uh, the economic impact seems to be moderating, meaning uh, businesses are learning how to adapt. Consumers are learning to adapt. And we have more tools at our disposal. We have now vaccinations. We now have booster shots. We have... uh, uh, one of the vaccines just got FDA approved. We have masks. We have more sophisticated testing. Uh, what we're seeing is consumers and businesses are using all those tools to increasingly learn to live, not perfectly, but to learn to live and adapt to this virus. And uh, that's the, that dynamic is what we're monitoring very carefully here at the Dallas Fed. And how have you been personally learning to weather this pandemic? Well, I have two small children. They're in school. I see how important in their school it is to use the masks. They can't get vaccinated. They're too young. But masks allows them to go to school every day and stay in school. The fact that their teachers are vaccinated also improves the likelihood they can stay in school in person. It makes it possible for me and and to go to work so that I know because I know my kids are in school. And so I see firsthand how all these these factors and adapting are helping us, uh, you know, move forward in our lives and in the economy. 
And then I walk around every night, every day. I talk to everybody. I walk into a restaurant. I talk to the maitre d'. I talk to. I go into stores. I I go to the mall. I drive my car when I get just to see what's going on, and again to watch this dynamic. Uh, but yes, we're all each of us individually is living through it ourselves, and uh, but but increasingly, I'm also in, increasingly aware. Again, I'd say it again, of how the actions each of us take individually are not just about ourselves, our individual health, they affect the community. And I, I think that is increasingly clear. My daughter is 15 and is largely self-sufficient in high school. Uh, I wouldn't want to give a parent of small children uh, the kind of troubles that we see. Man, oh man, I wouldn't give those troubles to a monkey on a rock. <laughs> Listen, the kids... My kid, what I've seen, these kids and their classmates are highly adaptable. It doesn't seem to phase them to wear a mask. I've heard people comment, oh, the, the, the negative impact of wearing, I, I, don't, I don't see it. They're, they're more resilient than I am, that, that, that's for sure. And they're adapting to this and going about their business. But, but, it's, but I do see it's a very important to them that they're in school in person. And if we can, any, any tool we can use to help make that happen, is uh, is to the good. Robert, thank you very much for your time and insight today. Thank you. Great to talk with you. Robert Kaplan is the president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas. Still to come, from a physically distant CD Howe, should we worry about deficits when interest rates are so low? That's the question we'll pose September 10th with the Jack Mintz Lecture with Dr. Martin Eichenbaum, the Charles Moscos Professor of Economics at Northwestern University. And September 23rd, the Fed on a tightrope, Inflation, growth, and the future of U.S. monetary policy with former Federal Reserve Bank of New York President Dr. William C. Dudley, the senior research scholar at the Griswold Center for Economic Policy Studies at Princeton University. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.